Well, I want to say a special welcome to all of you this morning, and thanks for coming out on a beautiful weekend to be a part of us, whether you're here in person or whether you're online. And I want to ask all of you to reach for the Bibles that we've provided for you to use or the one that you've brought with you, and turn with me to Acts chapter 19. So let me tell you what we're doing and where we're a part of in this year-long journey, this year-long what we're calling a quest. We're exploring the whole story of God together. And so for the first two-thirds of the year, we looked in the Old Testament, and then we turned to the New Covenant, the New Promise, the New Testament, in and through Jesus Christ. And we're in that section here in, uh, in the New Testament. We're talking about the growth and the expansion and the explosion of the gospel of the early church. We're talking about the mission of the church. Acts is a book that is about the early church history. And today, I want to take you to a very exciting and fun place. It was not just an exciting place back then. It's an amazing thing to even be able to visit today. And so I'm going to show you some computerized artistic renderings based on the actual archaeology of what they've discovered in Ephesus. Are you excited or what? Yeah, you are. All right, let me show you some pictures. Everything's better with pictures. This is an artistic rendering of Ephesus in the first century. It was one of the largest cities in the ancient world at the time. It was over a quarter of a million residents in this one area. And this is an aerial view of what that looked like. Ephesus was located in a strategic location between east and west. It really was the main opening to Asia from Europe or the other way around. You tended to sail hovering the coastline as opposed to sailing across. And less like in the Aegean Sea, you could go straight from Athens over to Ephesus. So you can imagine the amount of trade that took place in this area. Let me show you what the city might have looked like closer up. One of the most popular misconceptions when you go and look at ancient ruins is all of that white marble. You need to know that in the ancient world that was always painted, that it was always filled with vibrant colors. It was very much alive. And so this is what it would have looked like walking down kind of the main corridor or the cardo of the street that was here. And there were other amazing things that were located in the city of Ephesus, the crown jewel of which, which was built a little later than the first century, but they started building the collection in the first century of the famous library of Ephesus. It became one of the most amazing collections of ancient works in the world. But maybe the most popular stop, if you're ever to go on a tour in Ephesus, is to see this which is next, which is the um, terrace houses. One of the things that makes Ephesus so distinct from any other ancient ruin that you have ever been to is that we have uncovered the Buckhead district of Ephesus. There were wealthy people there, and in these terrace houses, they had unbelievable mosaics as well as drawings and artwork on the wall. They had indoor plumbing. They would use heating and cooling, and they had indoor toilets. This was very unusual for that point in time, and so it was very exciting. And then also in the city of Ephesus, you had their magnificent theater that could hold somewhere between like 25 and 27,000 people in the midst of it. And we're going to come back to this theater in a little moment. 
But the only thing that was a wonder of the ancient world was this building, this edifice right here. This is a rendering of the temple for the Greek goddess Artemis. Everybody say Artemis. Artemis is the goddess of fertility. And Artemis was the dominant figure for that part of the world. She was the one who dominated all of the imagination and everything that was a part of that landscape. This temple was so amazing, we have uncovered a a writing from somebody who lived in Thessalonica in the first century who said this about it. I've seen Babylon's walls wide enough to take traffic, the enormous labor of the pyramids, but once I'd set my eyes on the temple of Artemis, I'd say the sun shed its light on nothing sublimer. In other words, this person has traveled all over the world and has seen the pyramids and said that the pyramids are second rate compared to the temple of Artemis. Would you like to see a statue of Artemis in the ancient world? I know you would. You're not going to be able to unsee this. This is Artemis. And she's really creepy looking. Surrounding the middle are, and scholars debate this, are those 32 breasts or those 32 sacks of fertility from bulls who have been castrated. Artemis, as the goddess of fertility, was not to be trifled with. At one day, at one time, 5,000 men castrated themselves to pledge allegiance to Artemis. If you were blessed, it was because of Artemis. If you had a need that was met, it was because of Artemis. Artemis' temple was the only temple that faced to the west. Almost all of the other temples faced to the east, to the rising of sun. It was facing to the west, to the setting of sun, because Artemis was also the goddess of hunting and of the night. You might think that this is really strange, but in a time and an age where 50% of women died in childbirth, Fertility was a really big deal. If you didn't have a child, if you didn't have an heir, if you didn't have a person to carry on the lineage, it was a really big deal. And it is in the midst of this Artemis-saturated worship and culture that the Apostle Paul set up camp for a couple of years to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And when he did, it turned their world upside down. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in the related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large number of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. 
and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the whole province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Over a million pilgrims per year would come to visit the great temple of Artemis. And Demetrius is one craftsman among many who would make little statues uh, like the one that's the large one that you saw of Artemis. And that people would buy them and that they would take them and that a big part of their economy was built upon it. And so when Paul comes in and he begins to preach that God does not live in temples made by human hands as we saw last week in last week's message and that God is not something that is carved out of stone or of silver or of gold but that God is alive and active, unseen and amazing and that this God has come in Jesus Christ, people's loyalty started to shift and move from Artemis over to Jesus. And the word that they use in the Greek is that there is a great disturbance of what happened in that society. My first point is this. The gospel is not rejected because We consider it true or false. It's rejected because it threatens our way of life. Do you recall that moment? Because I'm old enough to know all of the different sea changes of what happened with all of these different technologies. I mean, I remember growing up as a little kid that we had this huge phonograph in the living room. It was a giant piece of furniture, and you would have to pull an album out, and you would put the album, and you could listen to it there. And then I remember the moment when I was in about fourth or fifth grade, and I got my first Walkman. Can I have a praise be to God for the freedom that was given when you first got a cassette Walkman and how amazing that was that you could put a brick and you could hang it on your belt and your pants would hang down, but you could walk the hood and you could listen to your music with giant headphones on. And then you remember the moment where there were these things called laser compact discs and that that was amazing. You could listen to music digitally for the first time and the quality of its sound. And then bit by bit, you know, the record industry loved it because you had to buy records and then you had to buy tapes and then you had to buy compact discs. And then there was this disturbance in the way that was called Napster. (laughs) And all of a sudden, there was a whole different way of getting your music. And the record labels wouldn't let you buy the music digitally and download them. And so you started getting them and it was from free from this organization called Napster. And it was beautiful except for we were stealing from artists, of course. What happened in that moment is there were a lot of lawsuits. And in those lawsuits, it pushed back against the record label companies of, yes, we need to protect the artists, and yes, we need to protect their arts. But you can't protect a business model. And all the record labels were in this disturbance not because there wasn't a better way to give something to people and sell it to them, but because it was a threat to their way of life. Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And most people think that 
people consider rationally, do I believe in Jesus or do I not believe in Jesus on the basis of whether or not it's true. I'm here to tell you with a quarter of a century of pastoral work, that is most often not the case. Most of the time is that we consider Jesus and we compare what we like from our way of life and we decide whether or not Jesus fits in to our way of life. And so the gospel isn't rejected on the basis of whether we think it's true or false. It's rejected on whether or not it fits into our version of how we should live. I want to show you a picture here of two famous figures of history. On the left, this is C.S. Lewis, and on the right, this is Sigmund Freud. And we don't know to what degree, because they were almost a generation apart, that Sigmund Freud less read C.S. Lewis, but we do know that C.S. Lewis read Sigmund Freud. And in his response to what Sigmund Freud would say about faith, which was basically that faith is just a projection, faith is just wishful thinking in a God, C.S. Lewis turned that upside down and inside out and said, maybe it's not just that there are people out there that have a wish that God exists, maybe there's also plenty of people out there that have the equal and opposite wish that God doesn't exist. And as an atheist, previously, C.S. Lewis could say this honestly. He said, I wanted nothing more than to be left alone. The gospel is rejected because it is a threat, because this is my body, and I want to be able to do whatever I want to with it. The gospel says that our bodies are temples of the Lord. My way of life might say, these are my resources, and I want to be able to do anything when I want with my money or these are my desires, or these are my thoughts, or these are my feelings, and the gospel might be a threat to the way that we currently see and live our everyday life. And this is not just about believing and unbelieving. My friends, there was a period of time in history during the Crusades where there were large-scale baptisms that were taking place of soldiers that were about to go to war in the Crusades, and they would baptize soldiers and submerge them in the water during the time of Charlemagne, and they would come underneath the water, but they would hold their sword out above the water. Basically saying, God, I want to give you all of my life except for this right hand that is holding my sword. I want to be able to do whatever I want with this. And today we might hold our phones or we might hold our wallets or whatever it is, our calendars. God, I want to be able to do whatever I want. And so my challenge you right out of the outset today is to what degree are you holding the gospel at arm's length? Not because you believe it's true or false, but because it's a threat to the way that you're living Second thing I want you to notice in Acts chapter 19 is that the gospel is not only rejected because it threatens our way of life, but it is also received because it fills us with God's own presence. If you rewind a little bit to the very beginning of Acts chapter 19, when Paul is first coming into the city of Ephesus, he asks a question. It says this, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we have not heard that there was even a Holy Spirit. And so here Paul comes in and he finds some people who have seemingly kind of 
believing or committed to Jesus, and he asks them if they have received the Holy Spirit, and they're like, we don't even, have never even heard of the guy. What are you talking about? And so there was this missing dimension in their discipleship. For you see, when we say that we believe in God and we believe in Jesus Christ, we are not just saying that we believe certain things about God or about Jesus, but that we are opening our lives for God to come and to dwell within us, to fill us. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you with a story from uh, a friend and a colleague by the name of Max Lucado. Max writes in his most recent book on the Holy Spirit, he says that there was this time when he was driving in San Antonio, Texas, and he looked down and he realized he was almost out of gas. He had less, you know how you have your little dashboard computers now can even tell you you have like 10 miles to empty? Well, Max said he had less than 10 miles to empty, and so he pulled into a gas station, he got out of his car, he put his credit card in, put the nozzle in, he went inside, he went to, to use the restroom, he went to buy a soda, he even talked with the clerk, he came back out, he replaced the nozzle, closed the cap, got back in his car and drove a ways down the road and looked down at his dashboard again and realized that he had not put a drop of gas actually in his car. Which was the whole purpose of him being there, right? I mean, it wasn't that the other stuff wasn't nice as an add-on, but the whole purpose for the stop, for the pulling over, was to fill his car full of something. My friends, I know all too many of you come to this sanctuary, come to worship online, and you come and you do a variety of different things, but you do the one thing that you need to do is to ask God to fill you with his power, with his presence. The whole point of faith is to be filled with God dwelling in you, to be filled with love, to be filled with peace, to be filled with kindness, to be filled with joy, to be filled with patience, for these things to now take residence and to overflow within your heart. And so I ask you the same question that Paul asked them a long time ago. When you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Have you heard of the Holy Spirit? God's own presence choosing to live within you. And so first the gospel is rejected because it threatens our way of life. The gospel is then received because it fills us with God's own presence. And finally, the gospel is resilient because there's nothing greater in the world. Let's see this in the text. This is Acts chapter 19 starting in verse 28. And so when they heard this, This is picking up in the story right after we left off in verse 27. When they heard about this disturbance, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him in. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. 
The assembly was in a confusion. Some were shouting one thing and some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. I love that line in the text. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him and he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I want you to picture this scene. I showed you the artistic rendering of the theater a few moments ago. And in, in Greek, this sounds very different. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This, we have translated this so poorly that it doesn't sound like a good chant. Can I show you what it's like in, in Greek? <laughs> Say it with me. Megaleha Artemisophysion, Megaleha Artemisophysion, Megaleha Artemisophysion. You could see that being a chant, right? Look at the theater here. This is a picture of the theater itself. Filled with people, angry, their livelihoods in jeopardy because of two years of undermining their way of life with the good news of Jesus. And do you know what it says in the text? That Paul wanted to go in there. Would you want to go in there? I would not want to go in there. Paul wanted to go into a theater with a raving crowd of 25,000 people who want to kill him. And they have to hold him back. Do you think he had some courage mixed with some of his faith? If you go to Ephesus, you will see little beautiful gems like this. On the right-hand side, right above that little inscription, there was what appears to be on the right-hand side, towards the top, an I, an X, and a circle with a line through it. That in Greek, my friends, is ancient Christian graffiti of ichthus. And you see it in its other form on the left-hand side towards the top. Do you see the little fish drawing that's there? These are the most ancient symbols of the Christian faith. These date back to the first century in Ephesus of Christians who carved these into the stone. But my favorite Christian graffiti is also from around the first century, and it's this wheel. This is the symbol of the Cairo. Chi, the X, Rho, it's shorthand for Christ the anointed one, the Messiah. Later on in the New Testament, we will learn about how hard things will get in Ephesus. That it will be a place of great persecution and what Christians will have to endure. And they carved their faith into stone 
for others who passed by to be able to know that there was someone who was faithful here. And they did this at the cost of their own lives. Why did they do it? The people of Ephesus shouted, great mega is the Artemis of the Ephesians. But Jesus had promised in John 14, greater things will you do because I am going to the Father. When the chips are down, you and I will do whatever we think is the greatest. And Paul wanted to go into that theater because even though they were chanting, great is Artemis, he knew that there was something greater. The question is, do you? Do you know that there's something greater than any kind of suffering or struggle or pain or threat? that you might be facing right now, that God is greater. And so I want to put these three on the screen one more time just for you to do your own little self-assessment. Where is your faith right now? Is it a place of rejection, of receiving? or of resiliency. People ask me a lot, oh, you must hate this time of year, Pastor, because it's the time of year where you feel like you have to stand before the church and do NPR fundraising. I don't believe I actually am in the fundraising business. You saw those carvings. Do you think any of the challenges that we face and the joyful opportunity that we get to be generous in a free society for the gospel? You think I have any hesitation about what we do as a family or inviting you into the partnership and even the mutual sacrifice of what faith is, of what this means? This costs us nothing compared to what it cost those early Christians in Ephesus in a hostile world to write the sign of the fish or the sign of Christ who was rejected so that we could be received. And I don't believe our faith is fragile at all because the greatest thing in the world is the God that we serve. And so let us pray. Our loving God and Father, we are so grateful this morning for the fact that thousands of years ago in one of the darkest spiritual places in Asia that Paul had the courage to walk in and to share your good news. And we know, O oh God, that the gospel turns all of our lives upside down. And that even in the midst of great disturbances, even in threats and ways of rejection, that we know that your good news continues to shine. And so help us to see you as the way, the truth, and the life.
that you're not just the projection of our own wishful thinking, but that we know that our lives, our money, our bodies, everything that we have belong to you. And so, O oh God, may we not be like those Christians in the Crusades who were baptized holding one thing out of the water. Help us to give you our all and to receive your Holy Spirit as it fills us with your power and your presence and your light and your love and your joy. And God, in an age that's becoming increasingly more hostile to what we believe, will you make us resilient Christians? And that we would do that with strength because there is nothing greater in the whole world. May we etch our faith in our generation through our cards, through our gifts, through our very lives because we know that you are great and we pray all of these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus and all of God's people said.